Blue Cliff Record, Case 55, Dogo's Condolence Call, Dogo's Condolence Call, also called Daowu's Condolence Call, Dogo, Daowu in Chinese, and Zengen, Qianyuan in Chinese, went to a house to make a condolence call. Zengen hit the coffin and said, alive or dead? Dogo said, I won't say alive, and I won't say dead. Zengen said, why won't you say? Dogo said, I won't say. Halfway back as they were returning, Zengen said, tell me right away, teacher. If you don't tell me, I'll hit you. <laughs> Dogo said, you may hit me, but I won't say. Zengen then hit him. <laughs> Later, Dogo passed away. Zengen went to Sekiso and brought up the foregoing story. Sekiso said, I won't say alive, and I won't say dead. Zengen said, why won't you say? Sekiso said, I won't say, I won't say. At these words, Zengen had an awakening. One day, Zengen took a hoe into the teaching hall, a gardening hoe, into the teaching hall and crossed back and forth from east to west and west to east. Sekiso said, what are you doing? Zengen said, I'm looking for relics of our late master. Sekiso said, vast waves spread far and wide. Foaming billows flood the skies. What relics of our late master are you looking for? Then Master Dogo, Tao Wu, lived in China in the late 700s and the early 800s, common era. He was a disciple of another great Zen master, Yaksan. Sekiso was also a very strict Zen master. But Sekiso is the second teacher that Zengen goes to. His monks were known for their sitting like tree stumps. They were called the stalk stumps, sitting stalk still, stumps of Sekiso. A monk one, once asked Sekiso, I am very close to you, separated only by a window. Why is it that I do not see your face? Sekiso replied, the universe is never veiled. So we don't know exactly what was going on, did in those days, they didn't have glass windows, so was it a, a oiled paper window? Was it an open window? Was it a window with a curtain? With a veil? I am very close to you, separated only by a window. Why is it that I do not see your face? Sekiso said, the universe is never veiled. Another master, Tozan, once said, after the summer session, you all disperse. Just like here, after the summer session. 
summer training period. You all disperse, some going east, some west. But you should go through thousands of miles of country where there is not a blade of grass. Thousands of miles of country where there is not a blade of grass. What is he talking about? Sekiso heard about this and said, when I go out the gate, right there I find grass. Grass? What are they talking about? Thousands of miles, not a blade of grass. And they're talking about something real. They're talking about states of mind. States beyond mind, states of being. You can imagine crossing the great Gobi Desert, which a lot of monks did and bringing, going to India and learning about Buddhism, studying Buddhism, learning Sanskrit, translating texts, and then going back to China. It was a very perilous journey. In some places, the way was marked by human skeletons. That's how they knew how to, how to go across the desert because these huge sandstorms would come up and could, in 10 minutes, wipe out all traces of an entire caravan. So you can imagine crossing the great Gobi Desert in a caravan days, weeks, without seeing anything green, without seeing grass. Encountering grass, do you see it differently? Crossing into the territory of mind without thought, emerging after timeless passage of time encountering the activities, the troubles of a human being mind again. How do we see it? Sitting in this session, fewer and fewer blades of grass in the mind when we emerge on Sunday. Grass springs up again. How do we see it? Yesterday, Hogan and I and Jogan and Kise went to pay a condolence call. We went to the cardiac unit at Adventist Hospital in Portland to join the Dharma Rain Sangha, who were sitting vigil with Kyogen Carlson's body. There are about 15 Sangha members there, all in silence. Half of them were sitting in the room where his body was lying in bed. And at Dharma Rain, they have a kit that they pick up. They learned this from Jiu Kennet Roshi, because death can occur at any time. They have a box that they can pick up and take right away to the bedside of the person who's died. And of course, they didn't expect to use this box so soon on one of their teachers. But there it was. And they took it and bathed the body. It has herbs in the box for bathing the body and dressed him in a clean white kimono and white roksu and white rosary beads. And someone had put a white kata, Tibetan kata, over his body. So there were about 15 Sangha members there, all in silence. Mm, little whispers here and there, but mostly in silence. 
half of them in the room, sitting around the bed with his body, and half out in the hall, sitting on the floor, standing. And people would take turns going in to sit for a while at the bedside. When we got there and I knelt down to look at Kyogen, I could have honestly asked the same question as Zengen, alive or dead? Kyogen looked as if he were asleep, very relaxed, one eye just a tiny bit open, as if he could wake up from a nap at any moment and pop his eyes open and say, what are you all doing here? Tears running down your face. His first transmitted disciple, Jiko, said that all day people told her the same thing who came for a while and left. They said, it's like a dream. Or they said, it's like drugs, being on drugs. Or they said, it's like he's playing a trick on us. Death can teach us a lot about life. When something drastic happens, it seems dreamlike. We're jolted, actually, out of the dream. If you've been in an accident, you may have experienced that dreamlike quality of time slowing down. Tiny bits of the event separated and illuminated so clearly, occurring by themselves in slow motion. Many of us sitting around the bed experienced the same hallucination that Kilgan was breathing. When you looked at the apparent movement of his breath carefully, you discovered that it arose from the slight movement of your head when you breathed. When we do breath practice, One of the things I ask is, look throughout the body. What is moving when you breathe? We're vividly aware of the chest, maybe the belly, and movement of air in the nostrils. But if we begin to look more and more minutely, which is such an important part of our practice, not to say, oh, I've, I've been there, I've seen that, but to keep going back again and again, like we do with the colon, again and again, Go back, look more carefully, more deeply. So when we breathe, our head moves. And that gave the appearance of his breathing at the same time I'm breathing. It was clear proof that every movement we make affects what we perceive. Changes that we perceive affects what we perceive, changes what we perceive, and even distorts what we see. Perhaps you've heard a sound you thought came from behind you, but when you turn your head, you realize, no, it's not behind me. It's on the right or it's on the left. Or you've seen the mirage of water on a road, on a hot highway, 
and it disappears as you move closer. Or you meet someone and the mind immediately moves and says, I don't like them. When you know nothing about them, isn't that the strangest thing that the mind does? Or you know them for a while and you still don't like them. But then something happens and you find out about the terrible hardships they've gone through or are now facing in their life. Daily abuse in childhood. Suicide of a parent. Maybe they have cancer with a terminal prognosis and they haven't told you. And once you learn, your heart-mind shifts from contempt to compassion. We are always seeing the world as if in a dream, a dream invented by our mind. A dream is essentially dead. We think of our dreams as very lively. Hmm? We're so interested in our dreams, and they can be very interesting. But actually, they're dead. They're not life. They're not alive. A dream has no actual life. When we catch people up in our self-centered dreams, we are rendering them as part of our dream. Their life without substance, not respecting their individual life or their path to awakening. They're part of the cast of characters in the story called My Life, the invented story, the dream called My Life. We're making them into the person we imagine them to be, a dead person, actually, invented by our mind, trapped in our delusion. When our minds are without picking or choosing, when preferences don't exist, and this is a state of mind, a state of mind, which you can touch during session when you don't care what is for lunch. You just go into the cafeteria, sit down, and eat. And the mind doesn't attach to one particle of food. When you don't care whether you get a break after lunch or not. Don't care is even too strong a statement. It's just irrelevant because it's just the flow of life. When our minds are without picking or choosing, when preferences don't exist, when the mind is still and open, we come to each person, each encounter, each parting, each flower, each fallen leaf, each step of kinhem, fresh, fresh, fresh. And then everything is alive. Everything is alive. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's way. My Dharma sister, Joko Beck, rendered the four great bodhisattva vows into this, this form which her tradition uses. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, 
exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Are you dead or alive? If someone came up to you and knocked on your back, hello, in there, are you dead or alive? What would be your answer? The same way we approach other people, dreaming them as part of our dream, we approach ourselves, actually. We see ourselves through the dirty windshield of I, me, mine. The problems I have, the problems that happen to me. We drag a huge garbage bag full of my past, my difficulties, my brokenness around with us. It's exhausting. Our minds are constantly weaving a self made of thoughts, thoughts of our past, thoughts of my future, fantasies about me. In Sashin, as the mind quiets, as we breathe, as Mu sweeps the spacious mind clean of thoughts, clean of thoughts as they accumulate, we discover an alternative to the usual small mind of self, mind of self. We discover that we are able to rest even for a while in relaxed, open, natural mind. With relief, we put down the garbage bag full of past and future. We begin to feel lighter in our being. We begin to awaken from a sleepwalking life. We rest in open awareness, all senses alive. We come to life, to vivid, precious, flowing presence, life. Then we can ask ourselves, alive or dead? As we go through the day, we can ask ourselves, alive or dead? Have I closed the fist of my mind tight around some thought about this difficult self? Am I squeezing the life out of my life? Or, as soon as I recognize this, can I open the hand of thought and release thoughts like helium balloons? Just let them go. And return to open, natural mind. In Sashin, we emphasize not moving. This is very important, as much as possible, not to move. All kinds of things bubble up in our mind when we sit long hours. This is part of what happens naturally in Sashin. Emotions come up, memories come up, some of them good, some of them difficult, itches, panic, boredom. All kinds of things come up. And we have a choice either to hold on to them or to let them go. Letting them go is actually done by not moving. By just staying with what is occurring. 
just staying present with what is occurring. If we feel the impulse to move, to move in the mind, oh, I don't want to think about that, or oh, I do want to think about that. Clinging aversion. We have a choice to hold on to them or let them go, and letting go is done by not moving. And that includes physically not moving, by just staying with what is occurring. If we feel the impulse to move, we need to look at what occurred just before we felt the impulse to move. That's how we see what's going on in there. Often there's some discomfort in the mind. Some thought even flitted through that was uncomfortable, and so we move the body or we move the mind. If we move, we generate karma, more karma. So there's the karma of what's coming up, and then we have a choice through practice not to move, not to generate more karma. Karma means intentional action. If we move, we keep the karmic chain going. If we can stay still and not move away or towards, the karmic chain is interrupted. When, dis- when discomfort arises then, when it's, whether it's physical discomfort, which everyone here has, or mental emotional discomfort, which everyone here has, That's the exact time to be very still. To find that place of stillness within and rest in it. And time to take refuge in impermanence. Death can teach you a lot about life. We go along thinking, well, probably I'll die when I'm 80 or 90, that is, if you're 60 years old, you think you'll die when you're 80 or 90. Maybe if you're 20, you think, well, I'll die in my 60s. That seems like it's far enough away that I don't have to worry about it. Whatever age we are, we often live in this illusion that, well, it's far enough away, I don't have to really think about it. We live in a dream of immortality, or at least, well, it'll happen sometime in the distant future. Not to worry about it now. When someone dies, suddenly they give us the gift of lifting the curtain. Lifting the curtain. We can see out the window clearly, see the face of death, our own death. We see that death has always been with us, always. From the moment we were conceived, always with us. All it takes is a very small event in the chain of cause and effect to end this life. A change in the potassium in our bloodstream, a particularly tenacious and virulent virus like the Ebola virus, a moment's inattention on the freeway on your part or someone else's part, an aberrant electrical current in our heart, 
from the sudden stopping of electrical current in our heart. The turning on or turning off of certain genes. A cluster of cells that dislodges and blocks an artery or decides to grow and to refuse to stop growing. A tiny thing, a tiny thing can end our life. It doesn't help if knowing that makes us anxious or paranoid. It does help if it gives a boost to our spiritual practice. To be able to live as a human being is so precious. Meeting the Dharma is so rare. Do not squander your life. Death can teach us about life, the impermanence that is the substance of our life. Death teaches us about life. We tend to think that things are fair or unfair. In America, we often live in entitled mind. I'm entitled to comfort, so on. Around the world, people don't live in entitled mind. So we th- tend to think that things are fair or unfair. We pick or choose. Oh, that's fair, unfair. Kyogen's father died at age 90. And the actuarial tables predicted that Kyogen would die at about 80 to 84. He died at age 67. We might get angry about that and think, how unfair. How unfair that this precious human life, so precious to all of his students, ended early. He was entitled to live at least to 80. But what about my grandson who died before birth? Or my colleague whose 40-year-old, very healthy husband complained of a headache And as she was driving him in the car to the emergency room, he died. Or what about our friend Steve Stuckey Abbott of Zen Center in San Francisco, healthy until the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, dying peacefully a couple of months later? Is that fair or unfair? In Buddhism, we look at fair in a different way than the rest of the world looks at fair. We live, we fall ill, we get old, and we die, all because of what? What's at the bottom of our being born, growing old, getting ill, and dying? The bottom is cause and effect. Cause and effect is ultimately fair. Cause and effect is unprejudiced. It doesn't matter if you're a Zen teacher or a criminal. Cause and effect is unprejudiced, mathematically precise, implacable. From that point of view, all deaths are fair. All deaths are fair. Because they occur through the action of cause and effect. Fair doesn't mean that we understand all the actions of cause and effect. It just means that our life is fair and our death is fair. 
Death can teach us how to live, how to live the remaining years of our life, whether one more or, like Joshu, many decades more, up to 120. Aware of death, we can reorder our priorities, do a deep cleaning of that bag of garbage that we have to surrender completely at the moment of death. Today, my mind was turning to Gyokuko's sad task of all the clothes hanging in the closet, all with the fragrance, unique fragrance of that person she loved. What do you do with those clothes? They have to be given away. They can't be taken through death's door. What to throw overboard if we know our time is short? what to bring forward, to concentrate on. It's a very useful meditation to do when death wakes us up for a little while, to consider if I had, if I knew I had one year to live, to go through all the aspects of your life, what would you emphasize, do more of, and what would you let go of completely? Death can teach us about life. At the vigil, everyone was quiet, respectful of each other, stepping out to let another person in the room, hugging and gently patting each other in shared grief. Death brings us together in shared grief. Death can bring us to a place of all-embracing compassion. Everyone's suffering, visible to everyone else, opening everyone's heart. Can we look at the people that we don't like and realize tomorrow you might be dead? This could be our very last encounter before the light of your eyes falls to the ground or my eyes fall to the ground. How should I treat you now? In Zen, we say the great matter of life and death, because this life and death are the source of our deepest questioning. Why was I born? Why do I keep on living? Some days struggling just to stay alive. Why am I alive? Do I have a purpose on earth? Why do I even bother to get up in the morning? Why, when the Han strikes, do I go to the Zendo to do Zazen day after day, hour after hour? Why, when the bell rings, do I take the trouble to open up the little package and lift up my arms and put on my Wagesa, my Roxy, my Okesa? What will happen to me as I'm dying? What will happen to me after I die? We want to approach death, even if our body is in bad trouble, with ease in our heart and mind. When a monk asks in all earnestness, alive or dead, is it a kindness to give him an answer? When Dogo tells his student, I won't say, is he being mean or compassionate? 
Should Dogo say, well, he lived a good life here, so now he lives eternally in heaven. He's wearing a brand new clean white robe with big wings, and he's taking group flying lessons, and he has a private tutor for voice because he wants to try out for the heavenly choir. Would that satisfy you? Dogo told you that? No. You want to know it for yourself. Maybe that's the truth, but you want to know that for yourself. Should Dogo say, I have no idea. Would that satisfy you? No. Another person's experience, even the experience of I have no idea, is not your own experience. Another person's experience cannot transform our distress our discomfort into ease. You want to experience the answer for yourself. That's why you're a Zen student. That's why you came to Sashin. You want to see for yourself that everything has its own light. You want to feel the flowing, soaring movement of easy passage through life and the endless nature of sky mind. You want to experience, even for a few moments, the joy of being in the midst of a choir chanting Lu, the discordant intensity and the beautiful harmony. Why were you born? I won't say. What happens when you die? I won't say. I do know that I and you are here to become enlightened to soar, to swim, to walk, to crawl, and eventually, hopefully, to roll your wheelchair through your unique life. To know for yourself and live for yourself and live for all other beings, a life that fits with perfection into a U-shaped hole, a U-shaped hole in the universe. Are you alive or dead? Are you alive or dead? At this moment, only you can say. 10% alive, 30% alive, 50% alive. We actually don't know the percentage because we don't know what alive is. We don't know what 100% alive is. Isn't that wonderful that we can keep discovering what alive is? I also know that there are magic keys to unlock the answers for you. The first magic key is faith. The second is doubt. The third is determination. Determination to move away from, determination not to move away from discomfort, but to move into and through it. This means to discover the stillness beneath all motion. Can you touch it now? The stillness beneath all motion. The silence beneath all sound. That silence is not disturbed by sound. That stillness is not disturbed by movement. 
out of these three, faith, doubt, determination, you will develop, discover, uncover the natural pure mind of awareness. As you come to have faith in it and to live more and more within it, your true life will naturally open. Only you can do the work that will bring life to your life. Please continue with great diligence and also joy to do this work. Come to life.